Well, some of you might have been looking for this, uh, the finishing message on the book of Acts. How's that? So uh, this is it. And uh, I don't hear any, oh, good grief, great, you know, whatever. <laughs> but I want to take you to the last two words, or last two verses of the book of Acts. This is Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. And when you read it, it, it seems innocuous. It seems like, well, this is not so bad. And it wasn't so bad at that point. And uh, if there's anything, this is probably the only part of Acts that I will read is these last two verses. This is Luke writing about Paul being in Rome and being arrested. And he's, you know, the appeal to Caesar for his case. And um, the, words, the words don't give you an idea that too much is going on that's jeopardizing Paul when you read this. He says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house. Not in jail, but under house arrest. And welcomed all who came to see him. He had the freedom to have guests come. So this was a very mild incarceration, you might say. Verse 31 is amazing. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, and watch this, and without hindrance. With no limitation, it seems like, on any of his ministry. And that's how it ends. This calm place that he has all of these benefits and privileges that are hardly given to prisoners. But he had this, um, he had this reputation that he could be trusted, and they trusted him to stay in, under house arrest, but he had all these people he kept ministering to. But that openness and that calmness would not last. We're going to go to 2 Timothy here in just a moment, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, because this is Paul's last correspondence. And when you read that book, that correspondence, that last letter that he wrote to Timothy, it does not reflect the last two verses of Acts. Chained to a soldier on death row waiting for his execution. This is how much has changed since Luke finished up the book of Acts. He did not chronicle anything of those last few years of Paul being in Rome. So Luke would see an entirely different setting when 2 Timothy is written. In fact, Luke possibly was the one who dictated that letter because Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he gave an idea of how delicate his situation was in regard to who was with him. He said, the only person I have with me right now is Luke. Luke was the only one with him as he was on death row waiting for his execution. So when he writes this final letter to Timothy, one of his team members, so he valued his team. He loved all of his team. Timothy was one of his, his treasured young men that he discipled. In fact, I think 2 Timothy 2, 2 is one of Caiaphas' key verses they use in discipleship because this is, this is Paul's last shot at telling someone what they should do with their experiences and what they should pass on to others because he's done. He's finished. And you get this finishing strong that you see in the bulletin, the title of this message, from 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. 
when Paul articulates what's going on. He said, Demas has left me, and not just left him, Demas had deserted him for the sake of the world. He fell in love with the world, the cosmos. He also says that Crescens had went to, uh, uh, I'm not sure if I remember exactly where he went, but Timothy went to Dalmatia, and so everybody left and went into ministry except Luke. Luke was the only one there. So I want to speak to you on these five subpoints that you see in the bulletin. Finishing strong. And all of these subpoints, how much time we have, could all be a sermon in themselves. How's that? But I'll try to cover them quickly. First up is strong grace. How do we finish strong? How did Paul finish strong? I, I, I wrote down some lyrics that we had some of the songs. His grace runs deep. And when you think about the word grace, it has a little bit of a soft sound to it, doesn't it? But grace is anything but soft. Grace is the power of God wrapped up in peace. And if there's anything what Kelly shared and what that, some of the songs, some of the lyrics shared is this. There's a place at God's table, at the Father's table for everyone in here. No matter where you've been, what has happened to you, there's a place for you and God's grace runs deep for you. His grace reaches out to you. To finish strong, and Paul was finishing strong, he was finishing knowing the magnitude of God's grace on his life. Earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 1, if you want to look there in verse 8 and 9, and I'm going to you know, jump around a little bit, but Paul challenged Timothy not to be ashamed of his imprisonment. He said, that, well, I'll just read verse 8. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Don't be ashamed of where I'm at because there were people who left Paul because they were embarrassed by where he was at. And they were ashamed of his change, same, ashamed of how his life was about to conclude. And he says, but share in the suffering. He's calling Timothy to share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God. And watch verse 9 if you're there. Who saved us, the gospel of God. He said, don't be ashamed of that because that's what saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. This is how God works in our lives. It's not through our works or our efforts or our determination, but through his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, by God's purpose and by God's grace. And Paul knew grace. He knew grace as a, as a rescuer of his life of living in a blasphemous way. He said, I was a blasphemer, but I didn't know what I was doing. I did it ignorantly. He was arrogant. He was orthodox to the point of cruelty. He had papers in hand on his way to Damascus to arrest men and women. He had no problem disrupting families, arresting anyone he could arrest, all because he felt like this Christianity thing was a threat to Judaism, and it was wrong, and it was deceitful. And so he, was, he had this encounter with the grace of God on the road to Damascus, and it was grace that appeared to him that day. And when you think about what happened there, and Jesus appeared to him, do you remember the question that, that Jesus asked him? He said, Saul, Saul. And, and the thing that he does not do, and this is what we do, we would articulate, why in the world are you killing my people? 
Why are you arresting men and women? Why are you disrupting families? Why did you approve the murder of Stephen? And that could have been true. All of that could have been true, but that's not what Jesus said to him, was it? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And as far as you read in the Bible, the Lord never brings up the junk that Paul did before his salvation. We're the only ones that do that. But you never see Jesus or hear Jesus talking to, about Paul, about how horrible his life was and the people he destroyed. In fact, you see just the opposite. When Jesus looks at him, he does not look at him in the terms that we would look at him. He looks at him and says, this guy's going to really be good for me. This guy's going to be my messenger to Gentiles. This orthodox Jewish man, so bent on, on snuffing out Christianity, he's going to be my main voice to the Gentiles. And so Paul says, who are you? And he's got this bright light. This person is appearing in the sky. And you can't even see him because the light is so bright. And that voice comes from that light saying, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up and go to Damascus and wait there. And Paul experienced grace that changed his life, kind of like what Kelly experienced at the altar. This incredible transformation took place in his life. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul says it this way. By the grace of God, I am, and I thought about, I am who you say I am. But he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He, whatever good came out of his life, he said, I can't take credit for it. It's grace. His grace to me was not without effect. This is what he says. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I. But listen, he said, it wasn't really me working, but it was the grace of God that was in me working out all of these things. So strong grace. Here's the next one, steadfast. The meaning of steadfast is resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering. And you see the scripture up here, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. In other words, stay the course. You and I will finish well in our faith if we do that. And Paul said, that's what he's calling the Corinthians to do. Be steadfast, unmovable. And listen to the past tense. Paul is really saying, I'm done. He said, I fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. These are not like, I'm finishing. He says, I'm done. This is it for me. I, and, and when I read the two analogies that you see in 2 Timothy 4, 7 is the analogy of a soldier and the analogy of a runner. And one of the books I read when I was on sabbatical was a new book by Douglas Mastriano, uh, Thunder in the Argon, because I'm, I'm a history buff. But the uh, Meuse-Argonne Offensive that ended World War I had 1.2 American soldiers fighting in it. The casualties were enormous. The, uh, the military cemetery there that Brenda's great-uncle is in because he was killed one month before the armistice. Two months of war, literally hundreds of thousands of, of soldiers on both sides 
of that conflict were killed. They were using chemical warfare. They were uh, blowing up chemical bombs over each other. They all had masks on. This was, this was one of the most cruel, inhumane things that went on in the history of warfare. They, they had developed airplanes enough to drop those same bombs over each other's armies. The, thing, the, the military hardware that was developed was, was the cost of life. And yet, in the midst of all that, was a man that, like Alvin York, a believer from Tennessee, who became one of the most famous war heroes. And it was his resolve, it was his steadfastness, his courage in the face of death. He led his men. I mean, I cannot begin to describe what God did through that man. And it's kind of like when Paul says, I fought a good fight. He says, I faced odds that were against me, and you cannot be unmoved by what God calls you to do. And if we finish strong, we're going to have to do it just that way. Here's the next thing. And I put pace up here because this relates to what part of that verse? I run, I finish the race. I finish the course. Is pace in Scripture? It's a, well, Pastor, you're kind of being liberal here. I think pace is in Scripture. Now, if you haven't run, all of this doesn't matter to you. But really and truly, here's the news. You are running. Whether you want to or not, it's kind of like Kelly went to the altar whether she wanted to or not because she, had, she was strong-armed, right? But we're all running a race, a spiritual race. Every one of us in this room, we're running a race. And I hope we're running the race, the course that God has destined us to run. And it's Hebrews 12 that I believe really gives us an indication that we need to be careful how we run that race. Hebrews 12 begins with, seeing we're compassionate about with such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us and let us run with patience or perseverance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, the the one who fills out everything that's missing in our faith. And I believe that's talking about seeing how you're pacing yourself spiritually. Because we have to pay. I think the prop, this is probably one of the biggest problems that we have in, in our, our running, our race, is that sometimes we just want to run fast. And we want to get to the next thing, and we're not pacing ourselves. We're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. If you've ever run a race... I. I, I ran track in high school. It probably doesn't look like I ran track in high school, but I did. I ran the mile, and I wasn't very good. I was kind of like middle of the field county-wise. Uh, I ran the first leg on the 4x100 re relay and the 4x440 relay. And, and, you know, I was running the first race because I was the slowest of all four people. And it gave the other three people time to catch up. But I remember my track coach saying, Charles, don't let them get too far ahead, okay? <laughs> it was limited excess of, of personnel. But those are sprints. Those are sprints you just go all out. Except 440, it's got to be one. Of, the 400-meter race has to be one of the hardest and the most demanding races someone because it's almost like a sprint, but it can't be a sprint. You have to save something for the end. And this is why finishing strong, we have to finish every day strong if we're going to finish life strong. I don't think that we're going to finish our, the finished finish if we're not finishing today strong. 
if we're not taking today as the most important day in our lives, the only day we have to make a decision, to talk to God, to let him talk to us and surrender ourselves to him, I mean intentionally and engage him and allow him to engage us, even though it's a Sunday, maybe it's a little bit easier on these than Monday. But every day, this is, this is why today is the most important day in your life and my life, because it's the only day we have. We can't go back and improve yesterday, and tomorrow is not ever going to get here. We'll always be in the now moment. We will finish strong if we finish every day strong. Every day counts. And here's the last one. is relentless. Relentless. It's not the fifth one, but it's the last one that is, I'm going to spend a little time on it. Look at Philippians 3.14. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heaven, heavenward in Christ Jesus. And by relentless, it's kind of like to me the twin brother of steadfast. And let me put it in, in these two contexts. In, in the Argon, the Argon is such a Thunder Nargram is such a hard book to read because it's so detailed. And Douglas Mastriano, who, who researched the German side, and there were Christians on the German side. We might think that all of them had to be, you know, sinners and reprobates, but the, the, the conflict erupted over assassination. So here was Europe engulfed in a war, and the United States tried their best to stay out of it. But when they kept sinking our merchant ships and killing people on the high seas, it forced our hand, kind of like what Pearl Harbor did in World War II. So we had like 200,000 people in the military, and they ended up drafting enough people to make up 4 million people in just two or three years. Can, can you imagine the enormity of that challenge? And most of our men that went to, to the front lines in that month of October in November, September, October, November. We're not really trained very well. It was tragic. But here's where I think steadfast and relentless kind of had to be twin brothers in their conflict. Steadfast is when you plant yourself and refuse to give way to counterattacks because they came. Every advancement was challenged. Every advancement. Every time they got any ground, they expected and they got counterattack. It was, it was two enormous fronts facing each other with machine guns and bombs and artillery and airplanes, and it was devastating. And yet there was this resolve of our soldiers seeing their friends get killed next to them, but staying steady. That's, to me, steadfast. But relentless is this, no matter how many people they lost the previous day, in going forward against lines well fortified, they would do it again. And they would do it again. And listen, friends, I think that's the kind of attitude we have to have. No matter how many setbacks we have, no matter how many things that happens to our lives we want to give up, we have to be relentless. We have to keep moving forward. We have to stay the course to finish strong. I've waited to this part in the message to show this video, and before I show it, let me just, it kind of rivals to me the miracle on ice. Al Michaels, 
Do you believe in miracles? That's 1980. So a lot of you don't know what I'm talking about. Do you believe in miracles? Saw it live and in, not in person, but I saw it live on television. This is 1980. The Soviet Union did not fall until about 1990 or 1991. So it was those dreaded Soviets that we were playing. And we beat them in their game, ice hockey. Well, to me, eight years earlier in the Summer Olympics, is to me one of the greatest Olympic moments. And I'll put this just kind of in context. Dave Waddle couldn't even train for a certain amount of time for the, the 800-meter run because he had tendonitis in both knees. It was the Soviet guy favored to win, that dreaded Soviet guy was favored to win. But there was all kinds of people favored to win, but not Dave Waddle. And you'll be able to pick him out real quick in this race because he's got an added fashion item that runners don't usually run with. So I want you to watch this. I think this video embodies right now, all of these things the that I've been talking about. The favorite. Like the man who won the 100 meters, he is from the Ukraine. In lane two, we're going to have Dieter Fromm of East Germany, another very strong runner. In lane three, Dave Waddle with the golf cap from the United States. There he is. Next to him in lane four, Robert Uko of Kenya. All of these men could win oh, the gold medal. Then we have Andy Carter of Great Britain. He also a very strong runner. Franz Josef Kepra, the veteran from yeah. West Germany on home ground. And Mike Boyd, the surprise from Kenya. And on the outside, we have Kupchik the pole. Two laps around. They run in lanes for the first 100 meters, and then they'll break. Boyd is looking strong again at the moment already. On the inside, we have Arshanov. Arshanov in the lead as they break, but Boyd on the outside is going for the lead right now. Uko, the other Kenyan, on the inside, and Waddle is way back exactly where he was in the semifinals. We don't know right now whether he's just trying to stay out of trouble. It'll be a few more hundred yards before we know if Dave is seriously injured or really just lagging back to stay out of trouble. He's not too bad because it was quite a fast pace through that first 200 meters. And as we said, here go the Kenyans charging for the lead, coming up to the bell lap, Boyd and Uku. Okay, and right with him is Andy Carter of Great Britain, Dieter Fromm of East Germany. Those are the four right now. And they're on the bell lap. The split is 52.3. If Dave could just pull up here and get on the outside of Arzanov, he would have him boxed in perfectly. Let's hope Dave makes a move down this back stretch. The Kenyans running like a mirror reflection of each other. In first and second, Fromm there he right goes. there with him. There's Arzana from the Soviet Union going up to the lead now. There goes Arzana, the favorite, taking the lead. Dave Waddle is making his bid. He's not in too bad position right now. I think Dave's in great position on this. At this point, he's in perfect position on the outside. Good striking distance to this last 100, 200 meters. Stand by for the kick of Dave Waddle. If he's got it, he could make it. But he's got to catch Arzana and the Kenyans. And here he comes. This is the bid for a gold medal of Dave Waddle. He's got one Kenyan. I think he did it. He made the gold medal. The man who came out of nowhere in the U.S. Olympic trials. Now watch him. The man who then got married, and some people said he should have gotten married. It was going to ruin him. He came up with two bad knees. He couldn't train for weeks. 
and he has come in and won the gold medal, the first tremendously exciting moment in track for the United States in these Olympic Games. And Dave looked the calmest of all. It's unofficial, but I think he had it. An amazing race. He, in that last 25 meters, pulled it out and took it from Arzana, who would have been the first non-English-speaking man to win the 800 meters. Well, what can you say about this fellow? He started wearing that golf cap because he had real long hair that used to come down in his eyes, and then he kept it as a superstition. He never changes expression, Dave. I though. think Dave, Dave is stunned. I don't think he realizes what he's just done. <laughs> it may very well be. From Canton, Ohio, he lives two blocks from the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Recently married, recent graduate of Bowling Green State. Let's take a look at the slow motion just to make sure he did it. Now let's enjoy again a beautiful sight in slow motion, the closing kick of Dave Waddle. Here Dave starts to reap the rewards for his great tactical race. The Kenyans who tried to push the pace in the beginning of the race are starting to pay for it in this home stretch as Dave, who laid off the pace in the first 200 meters, is just coming alive now and right here it doesn't look like he would be able to catch Arzano. Look how much he still has to make up, Marty. And to get around the two Kenyans, he really used a lot of extra energy in that last straightaway, but uh, this last 25 meters was just championship form. Dave Waddle, who has found Olympic gold medal form within the last year from heaven knows where. A year ago, he simply didn't have this, did he? Dave wasn't even ranked in the world last year. He's just meteorite right into the spotlight. And here's how they finish. Dave Waddle of the United States, the winner, Arjunov falling to a silver medal in second place, and Mike Boyt of Kenya getting third in a surprise. We'll be back in another minute at the games of the 20th Olympiad <laughs> in Munich. Any of you remember seeing that live? Back again I, I in Munich, Germany, the games down. of the 20th Olympiad. I was, well, you sound like you didn't know the end of it there. It was like, come on, go American, go. <laughs> you know, all of the things that I mentioned kind of fit that guy. He wasn't expected to win. I don't know if you heard the statement that he got married. Some people said he shouldn't have got married. Did you hear that? Because that, that's going to mess his running up to get him, get him married. <laughs> and a ball cap is not aerodynamically good. Yeah, yeah, it's like probably could have won by a couple of steps. But who knows? The ball cap encouraged him. But the reason why this just really has stuck with me over the years is the resolve, the, the pace. He didn't get caught up in what other people were doing. And if there's lessons for us to learn, is don't get caught up in what other people are doing. They may be at a pace that you can't go. Let God dictate your own pace, but stay the course. I watched my mother-in-law take her last breath. I watched my mother take her last breath. I watched my father-in-law take his last breath. And I was just hours behind my dad is passing away and we found my mother-in-law but I was there for two of them to take their last breath if the praise team can come on up and when when my mother took her last breath all six of us kids happened to be there that day and you know eight days of watching and waiting for her to take her last breath was was excruciating but when that happened, I, f I felt that she finished her race strong. And I felt that way because 
Alzheimer's did not define my mother. It defined her body. It did, it just broke her body down incredibly bad. But it didn't, it never laid the glove on her spirit. It could not affect her soul, her spirit. And I knew that. And that's what, when I said she finished strong, is because she finished every day. She finished every day strong. We have to determine in life every day to finish every day strong. You think about grace, steadfast, measuring our pace, being relentless, and it comes down to this, it's worth it all. When you see that last statement, verse 8 in this section, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who long for his appearing. To me, that longing is a daily longing for the presence of God, for the presence of Jesus. We, it, we're not doing justice to being people of grace if all we're holding on to is the rapture of the church. We ought to treasure the presence of Jesus and having interaction with him on a daily basis. Would you stand with me? There's a way for you. There's a place for you.